Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Let me just uh, lead us in prayer again. Father, thank you once again for this opportunity for us, your beloved children, to come together and worship you. And we have worshiped you in prayer. We have worshiped you in singing. We have worshiped you with our giving. And now, Father God, we worship you by turning our attention to your word. Speak to us today, we pray, Father God. Open our hearts to receive from you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we have come to the midpoint in this beautiful letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. As you know, the Apostle Paul had planted the church in Philippi. He loved the Christians there and considered them to be his partners in gospel ministry. And he writes to encourage them, to warn them, and to teach them. In our passage for today, he does all three of these things. And once again, he uses himself as an example for them. So if you're able, I'd like you to stand for the reading of the text. I'm going to go ahead and read Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." May God bless the reading of his word to us. You may be seated. So in this chapter, Paul begins by calling upon the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord and beware of false teachers. To give up any form of self-righteousness and to gain Christ and his righteousness, and then to press on to know Christ in an even greater way. He starts off in verses 1 through 3, commanding them to rejoice and 
to look out. Finally, the word here is better rendered, so then or now then. It's a word of transition, not a word of conclusion. So, so then, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Paul is transitioning here to a new topic, but before he gets into that, he commands believers to rejoice, note, in the Lord. We know that joy is a major theme in this letter. Paul uses one or another form of the word for joy 16 times in these four chapters. Here he reminds them that their joy is found where? In a relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. It is those who are in Christ who have a reason to rejoice. Therefore, true rejoicing no matter the circumstances, is a mark of the true followers of Christ. For we are in Him, and that gives us cause to rejoice no matter what. Amen? Paul now turns to a major theme in this letter, a warning to look out for false teachers and their false teaching. And we see that he is actually reminding them of a subject that he has already spoken or written about before. But for their safety, he is reminding them once again to be on their guard against the Judaizers, the false teachers who wanted to force Christians to follow all of the rules and regulations of Judaism, that they... The false teachers thought were necessary in order to earn salvation. Paul says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul first describes these false teachers as dogs. And the word he uses here is not the word for your beloved pet. This is the word for the wild scavenger dogs that ran in packs and plagued ancient cities. They were despised by all, and so this word was used as a derogatory term for those who were considered spiritually unclean. In fact, that's how the Jews referred to the Gentiles. They called them dogs. He was warning the Philippians to be a, to beware of these Jewish false teachers because they were truly the wild dogs. Wild dogs are vicious and dangerous and should be avoided. Paul is saying the same thing about these false teachers. Be wary. Be on your guard. Now, Paul's words may seem harsh and unloving in today's climate of tolerance and diversity. Even some in the church today consider it to be unloving and divisive to point out doctrinal error. Imagine that. Yet truth and love are not mutually exclusive. And followers of Christ are called to both. Jesus himself warned against false teachers. 
He described them as those who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. That doesn't sound too loving, does it? But it is because Jesus loves his people and wants to protect them from these ravenous wolves. If you love someone, you will want them to know the truth and protect them from that which is a lie, that which is false. Amen? Next, Paul describes these as evil doers. These Judaizers prided themselves in their supposed righteousness that came from their strict religious practices. But Paul knows all too well what they are really like because he was once one of them. Let's never forget that. Previously, he was Saul of Tarsus. And we'll hear more about that in a minute. He was once one of them. But after he came face to face with Jesus, he realized that all his religious works were worthless and could never have saved him, but were in fact leading him further away from God. And Paul wants to expose them for the evildoers that they really are. Finally, he describes them as those who mutilate the flesh. These false teachers were teaching that in order to be in right standing before God, the Gentile converts to Christianity would also need to be circumcised and keep all the statutes of the law given to the Jews. They taught that salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone was not enough. That to earn your salvation, one would have to live blameless lives in accordance with the Jewish laws, ceremonies, including circumcision, which when done for the wrong reason, Paul calls a mutilation of the flesh. This word here, mutilation, is different than the word for normal circumcision. The word used for mutilation here describes what the pagan rituals involved, the pagan priests who would cut themselves as a form of worship to their pagan gods. Now, in Paul's previous letters, he had written on this very important topic, distinguishing between true circumcision of the heart done by the Holy Spirit and false circumcision, which was simply cutting off some flesh. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, we read these words. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So whether you're circumcised or not circumcised, Paul says, doesn't matter. Because it's not outward circumcision that's important. And then in Galatians 6.15 He clarifies it even further. He says this, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but being a new creation. 
We need to be born again. We need to be a new creature in Christ Jesus. That's what we need. And then in his letter to the Romans, in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, we read this. Paul writes, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the law. Circumcision was an outward sign of the Old Covenant, just as baptism is an outward sign of the New Covenant. Does baptism save anyone? No. No. Baptism doesn't save anyone. Did circumcision save anyone? No. Okay. What what has to happen is the heart has to change. The true circumcision is done by the Holy Spirit who cuts away the sinful heart and replaces it with the heart that desires to love Christ. It's a work done in our soul, right? Not in our flesh. So just as baptism does not save anyone, neither did circumcision save anyone. So Paul does not want the Philippians to fall prey to the influence of false teachers who want to listen. They want to add works as a means of salvation. That what Christ did on the cross is not enough. We must add to it. Then in verse 3, Paul declares that we are the true circumcision. We are the ones who are truly saved by God. And he lists three evidences of our true salvation. Worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. First, worship by the Spirit of God. The origin of true worship is supernatural. It comes from the Spirit of God who indwells all true believers in Christ. It involves an adoration and a praise to God that transcends all outward rituals or ceremonies. It is not external, it is internal. It comes from the soul that has now come to know Christ and to love him. It is worship out of love and thanksgiving for the mercy and grace shown to us by God. The Father choosing us, the Son redeeming us, and the Holy Spirit causing us to be born again and applying the redemption earned by Christ for us. True worship is only possible from those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God. Others might gather with the church. They might sing with the church. But they're not true worshipers unless they're worshiping in spirit and in truth because the Holy Spirit has changed their hearts. These are the true Circumcision. The second evidence Paul states is to glory in Christ Jesus. 
glory here. This word means to boast with exultant joy. And it describes the practice of a true believer giving all the glory to Christ. True Christians give all the credit for all that they are and all that they have to Jesus Christ. They do not boast or glory in themselves, but in Christ who has saved them. We are not to glory in ourselves. That is a manifestation of our sinful nature. We're to glory in Christ and in Him alone. And thirdly, they put no confidence in the flesh. The flesh speaks of man's fallen, unredeemed sin nature, fallen humanity. Because it is fallen and unredeemed, the flesh can do nothing to please God, nor does it desire to do so. In fact, it's against God. The flesh is unwilling to submit to God's authority. Therefore, true believers in Christ do not live according to their flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, there are times when our flesh raises its ugly head, and if we are not prepared, we are caught off guard. Amen? That's why we still sin, right? Our flesh still desires what it desires. And we must be on guard against that. But true believers are just that. They're on guard against their own flesh. Because in our innermost being, we want to please and glorify Christ. So we cannot in our humanity merit or earn salvation. It is only those who turn away from self-efforts, repent, and embrace the truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So we are to rejoice in the Lord and we are to look out for false teachers and false teaching or any form of putting confidence in ourselves or I might add in our religious practices. We are not saved through religious practices. We're saved by having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ through repenting and trusting in him. Paul then shares his own testimony of his life B.C., before Christ, when he himself lived a self-righteous life and how he learned to give that up in Christ. Verses 4 through 7. From the standpoint of human religious qualifications... Paul could stand toe-to-toe with any of the Judaizers. This included his heritage, his upbringing, and his own pursuit of righteousness through all religious means. You want to talk about a religious man? Saul of Tarsus would be the poster child for a religious person. Look at verses 4 and 5 describes his heritage and his upbringing. His heritage, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, which was one of the most prominent tribes in Israel. So he has the perfect birthright. What about his upbringing? 
He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. This indicates that although he was born and raised in Tarsus, outside of Israel, his parents brought him up as a Hebrew, including the Hebrew language. In customs, in education, in language, they lived as Hebrews, as Jews among the Gentiles. They did not allow the Gentile practices in their family, in their home. Not only that, but he was raised to be a Pharisee. His parents were Pharisees, and they raised him to be a Pharisee. To become a Pharisee was to be completely devoted to every aspect of obedience to the Old Testament law and the rabbinical teachings. They were the strictest, most legalistic sect of Judaism. And that was, the, that was Saul of Tarsus. And then in verse 6, he describes his pursuit of righteousness. He says this, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Saul, again his Jewish name, showed his zeal for God by persecuting the followers of Christ, wherever he could find them. The Jews viewed zeal as the supreme religious virtue. To be zealous meant to love God and to hate that which offends God. Paul's zealous but misguided love for God caused him to hate and persecute Christianity with all that was within him. And then he goes on, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. Wow, who can make that claim? Well, apparently Saul. Before his conversion, Saul had lived a life of outward conformity. Note that, outward conformity to the laws of Judaism. Those who observed his life would have found his behavior to be blameless. No one could bring a charge against him. That's quite a statement. By all outward appearances, Saul was a model Jew who followed every teaching and precept and ordinance of the Jewish religion. Yet, he did not truly know God. He did not know how to truly please God or live for God. Think about that. This is a Jew practicing all the tenets of Judaism. And he doesn't even know God. He looked perfect on the outside, but on the inside, nothing but dead men's bones. He was the prototypical whitewashed sepulcher, where they would whitewash the tomb. It looked great on the outside, but on the inside, dead men's bones. But God... But God, something happened to Saul when the risen and glorified Christ appeared to him in a blinding light on the road to Damascus. Saul was knocked off his high horse of self-righteousness and realized that he had trusted in religion 
and that trust was worthless. Even worse, he had been zealous to please God and tried to do so by persecuting the Son of God, Jesus, the one sent by God to be his Messiah. Talk about your world being turned upside down in a moment. Saul cries out, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. His entire world was turned upside down. And as he now writes in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Finally, Saul understood who Jesus was. And finally, Saul understood his need, not for his own righteousness, but his need for the righteousness of Christ. His own righteousness is like filthy rags. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Saul experienced the great exchange as his filthy, wretched rags of self-righteousness were stripped off and replaced by a robe of righteousness to cover all of his guilt and shame. The righteousness of Christ. Paul gladly gave up everything to gain the righteousness that is found in Christ. That is the same righteousness we need today. Amen? So he gave it all up to gain Christ's righteousness. By God's amazing grace of salvation, Saul received an infinitely better righteousness than he had managed to produce through his own religious efforts. This is why Paul emphasizes so emphatically the contrast between a righteousness of my own that comes from the law on the one hand versus that which comes through faith in Christ. Look at verses 8 and 9 again with me. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The righteousness we need can only come through faith in Christ. Paul shows here how radically the focus of his heart had shifted. It had shifted away from himself and his attempts at gaining God's favor, his attempts at perfect obedience, at least outwardly. And he now rests completely in the accomplished obedience and sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus lived the perfect life of perfect obedience that not one of us can live. 
And then he laid down that perfect life as a sacrifice for the sins of all who would trust in him for their salvation and righteousness. Paul had come to rest in Christ Jesus my Lord and to thereby receive the righteousness that was needed to stand before God, to have access to the Father. Because Saul had no access to the Father until he was clothed in the righteousness of the Son of God. And then he had unlimited access to the Father as his beloved Son. And the same is true for us. We need to rest in the accomplished, completed obedience and sacrifice of Jesus. The Westminster Shorter Catechism beautifully captures Paul's point when it describes justification as, quote, an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight by the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Imputed means credited. So that's the great exchange. Jesus took our sins upon himself and paid the penalty for those sins. And we are credited with his perfect obedience and divine righteousness. We're clothed in him. We're clothed in his righteousness. And one day, we will be righteous as well throughout once this body of sin and death is gone. In that amazing exchange of grace, Jesus received the curse, condemnation, and execution that Paul deserved. And Paul received the divine approval for complete obedience that Jesus deserved. Paul was now clothed in the robe of Jesus' righteousness. Paul knew that the sin and shame of his defiance and self-reliance had been paid for by Jesus' death upon the cross. That's why in Galatians, Paul describes Christ as, quote, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Notice this, that the treasure for which Paul has given up everything is not merely forgiveness or even justification before God. The treasure worth more than anything to Paul is Christ himself. To gain him, to be found in him, to know him. For Paul, Christ is not merely a dispenser of saving benefits. Christ is the second person of the triune God for whose fellowship we were designed and in whose fellowship we find our highest joy. This is why Paul was determined to press on to know Christ in every way possible. Paul had only just begun to know Christ and wanted even more. He wanted to experience the power of Christ's resurrection applied by the Holy Spirit. That power had transformed him from one who had been dead spiritually, dead in his trespasses and sins, 
and had, had been made alive together with Christ. The Spirit's then powerful indwelling presence is the down payment and guarantee of our future inheritance, a foretaste of the final transformation of our lowly body to become like Christ's glorified body. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. We read that in Philippians 1.6. So Paul had tasted of the power of Christ's resurrection, but he wants more. Paul also states that he wants to share in Christ's sufferings. Look at verses 10 and 11. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul states that he wants to share in Christ's sufferings. Paul understood too well that suffering would result from our union with Christ. Through the power of Christ in us, we can endure the hostility of this wicked world towards us, towards our Savior, and towards our faith. Paul had already experienced this to some degree, but he knew that more was coming. He knew that more suffering lay ahead, and he embraced it as a way of suffering for the sake of his Lord who had suffered so much for him and for us. Paul saw his sufferings as but momentary light affliction that is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4.17 Sometimes when we're in the midst of those sufferings, they don't seem so light and momentary, do they? And yet, that's exactly what Paul says they are. And he's writing this from prison. Light, momentary. Not making light of those trials. But they're light and momentary when compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. The fullness of Paul's present suffering is yet future. For Paul, he anticipates becoming like him in his death. Jesus died for proclaiming the truth about the kingdom of God. Sinful men did not like his message, so they killed the messenger. Paul expects the same for himself. He anticipates that one day he would become like Jesus in the manner of his death for preaching the gospel, which would then result in his one day also attaining the resurrection from death. The same resurrection that Christ experienced. One day, Paul and every other true believer in Christ will be made like him in our resurrection. One day, every true believer in Christ will be raised from the dead and receive a glorified body like our Lord. We will be raised in glorified bodies. And in that regard, we shall be like Christ. I don't know about you, but I look forward to that. 
And this was something that Paul looked forward to as well. In a couple of weeks, as we continue through this letter, we will see that in the next few verses, Paul knew that he had not yet reached perfection in Christ. So what did he do? He pressed on to know Christ in a deeper way and to be even further conformed to the image of Christ. And we should do the same. Amen? How many of you are perfect today? Perfect. Now, when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son because we're clothed in that. We're cloaked in that righteousness. But we know the reality is we are not yet just like Jesus, are we? But that should be our goal. That should be what we are striving to do. Not to be saved, but because we are saved. These things that Paul wrote to the Philippians apply equally to us today. We are also to rejoice in the Lord and look out for false teachers and false teaching that would lead us astray. We are also called to give up all of our self-righteous thinking and behaviors and instead trust fully in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for our salvation and that that is what gives us a right standing before God. And we are called to press on to know Christ and to live in fellowship with him, sharing in his righteousness, sharing in his life, in his church, in his sufferings, and even in his death itself. Knowing that this is the way to eternal life. This is the way to the glory that awaits us in Christ. This is the way. Let us rejoice today in Christ and in the salvation that has been provided by him. Amen? Let's pray.